and welcome to this RSS podcast discussion about managing and resolving disputes in the construction industry. My name is Martin Burns and I'm Head of ADR Research and Development at RSS and uh, joining me today is uh, John Fletcher who is the RSS Director of Dispute Resolution Services. Good morning John. Hi Martin, good to be with you again. John, I was doing some prep for this podcast and thinking about the job that you and I do, you know, the, yeah. uh, we've been doing it for many years now at RSS. And one of the things that occurred to me is that a problem that you and I are constantly grappling with is that people in the construction industry often don't really think about how they're going to handle disputes until it's far too late. Yeah, I'd agree with you on that. I think that's probably absolutely common across everything that we deal with. Uh, People are focused on the project they focused on getting the contract together you know i think in a way it's 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 a function of the fact that when people are contemplating a project there's there's a level of of excitement there's a level of anticipation of this really important piece of work that they're going to do and no one is expecting at that stage that they're going to fall out with each other and it's almost sort of you know I wouldn't say it's impolite to actually raise the fact that they might fall out with each other later, but it's not top of people's agendas at that stage to be thinking about what happens when things go wrong, because quite naturally their minds are focused on getting this important piece of work done. Well, things do go wrong, don't they? I mean, the fact that you and I have almost made a career, we have made a career, I certainly have, out of the fact that people get into disputes. Well, I mean, prior to coming to RICS, I was a barrister. So, I mean, you, know, you can't think of, a, of another career that is even, you know, any more focused on making a living out of other people's misfortunes. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, here's a question for you. Given this thought that people should perhaps be thinking about how to manage and how to deal with conflict before a dispute happens, before they get entrenched and before they start incurring loads of costs and falling out with each other, uh, what, what kind of advice do you think companies should be getting to kind of minimise the risk of disputes? So where are you talking about, Martin? Are you, are you sort of thinking about the very, very early stages before yeah, they even get their lawyers involved to put pen to paper? Or are you sort of talking about it as the project starts to progress? I'm thinking even before that. I'm thinking, you know, for a start, conversations I've had with people in the industry, they describe for me procurement methods which are just recipe for disputes you know well i mean a procurement method where you look at a number of tenders and you just grab the cheapest one yeah exactly um, i mean it's an obvious recipe for it uh, I, I mean unless they are people that you've dealt with a hundred times before and you know that the quality of their work is exceptional you've never had a moment's problem with them and they just also happen to be the cheapest tender but um you know outside of lewis carroll i don't think that happens all that often no, my, my experience, and this is a real cause for disputes, I think, because it, it sets the whole project up for a dispute even before you know the, the contracts are signed, and that is the procurement program becomes a race to the bottom of the pit. Yeah. And I mean, you've then got to start asking, how is it, you know, <laughs> there's no such thing as a free lunch. So, you know, where do those low costs come from? And inevitably, our experience has been, and I mean, there's no point beating around the bush. I mean, our experience has been that the, the, the tenderers have factored in the fact that they will expect disputes to arise, they will expect variations to happen, they will expect to make their money back mm. uh, during the course of the of the project. So although the the top line figure on the tender might be low, at the back of their minds, that's not going to be the final figure that's going to be paid. And they and I mean I'm sure you can well I mean we know plenty of examples, very, very big public examples where cost overruns have been extraordinary. You know, I, I mean, one's got to be careful not to to say in public that that was deliberate on the part of the the contractors. But I mean, one can one doesn't really have to look terribly far to to work out that that is part of the approach that they take. You're absolutely right. I was talking to one major infrastructure employer, and they were telling me that a couple of projects they're involved with overrun by 40% mm. in terms of costs. And a lot of that is around, it could have been avoided, I, I think, yeah. if the, the procurement program had gone right, if they got the right people on board. And it, it's all about the contractor and the employer working together yeah. to get the project on time, on budget, with the contractor getting a decent profit out of it too. 
yeah. But I mean, I think one's got to be one's got to be quite careful here because there obviously are contracts which have gone pear shaped because of factors that have arisen during the course of the contract that the parties didn't anticipate. And it would be completely unfair to say that the contractors there have quite deliberately sort of gone into putting in a tender way under value or with a cynical view that they will get their money back because of variations and problems that arise mm. during the course of the, of, the, of the project. But I think there is, you know, going back to the initial point that you made is this race for the bottom and taking on the tender that is the lowest, just as your point of principle. There's a huge danger inherent in that because it, it does then open the door for those more cowboy-like practitioners out there who, who are deliberately exploiting the process. And, you know, uh, that really is, it's, it's naive and dangerous for people to procure on that basis. Yeah, I, I agree. In a moment, I'm going to explore with you, John, a little bit further about the sort of time within the project program that parties should be thinking about how to manage and avoid conflict. You know, from, we've just talked about the procurement. But in terms of this argument that, you know, I've heard many times that from construction professionals, surveyors, lawyers, engineers, all sorts, who've said, I've never been involved in a dispute and they don't really recognise that disputes are a problem. Well, some statistical data I've seen suggests that, you know, at least 5% of some of the major project costs go on legal spend on managing and resolving disputes. And if you're looking at billions of pounds worth of project, that's enormous. But here's actually some empirical evidence I can cite now. And you and I have recently been working on a couple of webinars with um, RSCS on the HKA Crooks Insight Report on yes. Global Construction Disputes. Mm -hmm. And the numbers that they are citing in that report are just breathtaking, aren't they? So they looked at 1,400 projects, okay, across the global spectrum, yeah. in 94 countries, in fact, and the capital expenditure on those uh, projects was somewhere in the region of over two trillion US dollars. I, I can't even imagine that, that much money. Within that expenditure, the cost of conflicts and disputes was somewhere in the region of $73 billion. Yeah. $73 billion. It's not spent on the project. It's not spent on the profit for contractors. It's not spent on, you know, making sure that the project's delivered on time. It's spent on resolving disputes. And indeed, here's, here's another one. Claims for extensions of time in those projects totaled nearly 751 years. <laughs> that's that's even longer than you've been at RICS. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> but it's, it's staggering, isn't it? To hear that. And you and I work in the UK, and the UK, the construction industry, is such an important industry. It represents 10% of UK GDP. And if you think of 10% of UK GDP and that amount of money that's been spent on resolving disputes, which in many, many cases are unnecessary, then something really needs to be done about it. People need to be thinking much earlier about how to deal with disputes and how to avoid them, in fact. Uh, and there's a, an issue. So we talked about procurement and getting the procurement right, you know, getting the right contractor at the right price and working collaboratively to achieve the project aims is hugely important. But isn't it also important that you get the contract right? I'm sort of, in a way, wondering whether you can separate the two because... Whatever conflict avoidance mechanisms you put in place will be one way or the other reflected in the contract. It is going to be that contract which will sort of define the relationship and the working relationship between the parties to an extent. I mean, obviously, the individuals and the personalities and the way the project developed does it as well. But it really is the opportunity that people have got is to think about what they put into their contract at the beginning in terms of providing dispute resolution clauses and I mean, you, you, how many times do you see when, when cases come our way that you know, lines have been drawn through the dispute resolution clauses in you know, sort of standard form contracts? Mm, that's true. Or people have scribbled in their own ideas, which very often amount to the, the MDs of the two firms will talk to each other, and if that doesn't work, they'll go to arbitration stroke court. And there's so many other more imaginative 
flexible, cost-effective ways of dealing with it. Forgive me, John, for for coming in there, because where I was leading this conversation on this point is very much around a conversation I had yesterday with a construction lawyer. And she said to me that far too often parties sign a contract on a project thinking, oh, we used that contract in the last project and it was fine. And what they're not doing is relating the contract to the project they've got in front of them. And so when a problem arises and they go to the contract, it's not helpful. And that in itself can cause disputes. And indeed, the HKA Crooks Report is cited one of the major problems that gives rise to disputes and, and conflict in the construction industry is the contract itself. Yeah. Parties haven't really thought it through properly. No, I think I think we're both looking at two sides of the same coin, Martin, because clearly if the contract itself doesn't address the specifics of the project which is going to be applied, I mean, that's a recipe for disaster. Yes. And yes. what you're looking at there is far better contract drafting, contract management, whatever you want to call it. But there's the other bit about the actual specifics of what you put in the dispute resolution section of the contract. And what I was looking at was the the fact that so often the bit of the contract that does deal with what happens when things go wrong has either been amended or has been scratched out or hasn't been advantage hasn't been taken of it anywhere near as much as advantage could be taken in terms of putting in reference to mechanisms other than just going to arbitration or going to court. What kind of mechanisms are you thinking of? Well, I mean, you can, I mean, the the classic one, of course, is dispute boards, but I mean, you could be talking about conflict avoidance panels, you could be talking about going to early neutral evaluation, you could be talking about sending parties into a step process by saying that they have to engage in some sort of mediation. And by that, I mean, I'm sure we'll come back to this. I mean, we're talking about a really strong, robust, dare I say it, evaluative form of mediation, which is really designed to deal with these sort of conflicts. I mean, there's a whole range of things that people can put in there, which which cost less, happen earlier. And if you're talking about the best types of conflict avoidance provision, you want to have a process that gets the dispute dealt with when it is still in the hands of the project delivery team, whose focus is on getting the job done, rather than when it has moved over to the corporate lawyers, whose who's focus, quite correctly, and I mean, we both lawyers, is making sure that they protect their client from any further damaging admissions and, you know, start seeing everything through the lens of what is evidence and what isn't evidence and what goes in the statement and what experts do we need and preparing themselves either for arbitration or trial which you know introduces a whole dynamic into the process which is based on winning a case rather than getting the project completed yeah what you say makes a great deal of sense john i think you know parties who eventually get to that situation where they need to hand something over to the lawyers the commercial people lose control of the outcome then don't they it's it's out of their hands well, I mean, I think that's just inherent in the structure of any organization. And, and it's not even the big ones, because little organizations will tend to get to feel themselves getting out of depth very quickly when it's, when it's anything legal, and they'll call in their solicitors. And I'm not casting any aspersions at the legal profession, because I mean, I spent most of my life <laughs> as a practicing lawyer. I mean, your, your job as a lawyer is twofold. It's to protect your client against incurring any further loss. So you you know you just put up the shutters and you make sure that there are no further admissions. And the last thing you want to do is to go into a sort of open-ended, frank conversation with the other side, in which you know you could admit that you haven't done things right or other things haven't done right, and concessions are made and try and sort out the project. Because ultimately, if it doesn't get sorted out, and you do end up in court or in front of an arbitrator, you want to make sure that your client's in a stronger position as possible. And then secondly, you start thinking about it as a lawyer, not as a construction person or engineer. And you, you're thinking about, you know, what, who bears the onus of proving what? What evidence have I got at my disposal? What witnesses will I need? What documents would I need? What experts will I need? How will I prove this? How will I discharge the onus that's on me? You know, what are the risks involved in litigation? All of those are the things that you're focusing your mind on. And that ultimate issue about getting the job done, getting the bridge built, getting the building put up, getting the harbour built, that isn't your concern. Your concern is the legal process and winning the case. Whereas 
if you can contrive to get a conflict avoidance process written into the contract that says, look, before it goes into the hands of the lawyers, who quite properly will be approaching it from that direction, we need to have a mechanism in place by which the project delivery team, the actual people on the ground, not the lawyers, the technical people on both sides, have a mechanism either by themselves or ideally with the with the assistance of a neutral, independent, but highly experienced and expert individual to guide them through a process of, of sensible, clear discussion and negotiation with a view to trying to, to settle the dispute between them and get on with the project and stop the delay and stop the cost overruns. And that, I think, is you know what we as RICs have developed in the, in the conflict avoidance process, uh, which we've seen applied really quite well in, in industry over the last, what, what's been running, what, five, six years now, Martin? What you've described there, John, is that it all sounds great to you know sense, you know, to avoid that litigation process, which the way you describe it, I imagine for any jobbing QS or, or engineer on a, on a contract who is very much engaged in their specialist area, that that would sound like a nightmare to get into, you know, this whole litigation adversarial process. So what you've described, this more sensible approach about putting something into the contract, which enables the commercial people to get a, a, a support in helping them to resolve disputes makes a great deal of sense. But, you know, in reality, does it really work? Well, I'm going to throw that one back at you because, I mean, within the dispute resolution service at RICS, I mean, you're the person who's done the heavy lifting over the last five or six years in the development of the of the conflict avoidance process, and you've been absolutely hands-on with the work that we've done there. So, I mean, I think this is, this is where you should start talking about what we've done because I think people will find it interesting. So what you're saying, John, is I've asked a question I already know the answer to, which is what every lawyer should be doing. Yeah. Never, never ask a question you don't know the answer to. And, and yes, you're right. I've spent 30-odd years working at RSS in the area of dispute resolution. And for a lot of that time, it was all about helping parties across the built environment, not just construction, but construction being a bit at the heart of it, to resolve disputes, disputes that had already been um, well rehearsed in many cases. But over the last few years, what we've seen is this increasing appetite in the industry to try and reduce the costs of disputes and in doing so, to, if possible, to avoid conflict, which it can't always happen, of course, because people being people, mm. they won't agree on everything. But not to allow differences of opinion to escalate to the point where it's gone down some very legal and costly and sometimes inordinately slow process to get to an outcome. And what we've done at RSS is help develop methods of dealing with conflict as it emerges. And of course, we, we've worked with the rail industry in particular in putting together a process whereby parties, when they have a disagreement in the boardroom and the lawyers are sat at the end of the table waiting for the signal to go and adjudicate or arbitrate or, God forbid, litigate. Before that happens, they introduce a third-party neutral who's a subject matter expert whose job, and I, I, I say this because it was described by the, the employer and the contractor that their role was to bang people's heads together, but basically give them an answer, an impartial but expert answer to the question that the both sides are grappling with. Fully reason out that answer and allow the parties then to use that as a risk analysis, if you like. You know, okay, we, we now got a real sense of where this matter might go if it does go to adjudication, arbitration or litigation. But of course, if it does go down that route, it's going to cost us a lot of money. We're both going to fall out over it. And indeed, if, in some cases, it could take years before we get a result. So we've got an answer. What can we do with that? And every time we've put somebody into that role as, as an independent conflict avoidance, conflict management professional, we call it CAP, it's actually been successful. Mm. None of the disputes where that third party, and you know, the, it's either an engineer or an architect or a lawyer or, or, or a surveyor, every time we put somebody into that situation in the, the jobs where we've been asked to help out, the dispute's gone no further. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think it's almost unsurprising because, I mean, I know from, from practice that 
how often are you briefed to appear in a trial? And you just know in your heart of hearts that the matter is never going to go to trial. It's going to settle eventually because inevitably there is a third way. There is a way that the parties can settle. And the, the fact that they land up in arbitration or they land up in court isn't an indication of the fact that a settlement isn't there for the taking. It's just that they become absolutely entrenched in viewing the case through the lens of their own side's perception of it, that they can't see the merit of what the other side is saying. And it's only when they eventually get to the point that they they are really facing the prospect of going to trial, the uncertainties of, of possibly losing it, and the, the certainty of the cost of it, that suddenly common sense prevails at the end. And so what we're talking about here is is getting that exercise of common sense to take place much earlier. Because the reality is, although people will talk up the fact we're going to go and fight this to the death, they don't. The figures are, I can't remember what the figures from the TCC were, but it's something like 93% of cases in which formal court papers are issued never go to trial. They settle. Yeah. And that's that's cases in which they've actually got to the point of issuing formal proceedings, never mind lawyers writing letters of demand to each other beforehand. So, I mean, you know, quite clearly the figure's even lower. But I mean, what you're really talking about, though, is this process that we've worked with uh, within the rail industry. What's important about it is that when you go to trial or you go to arbitration, what you get is a is a judgment or an award, which is a determinative ruling, which binds you. And I mean, short of taking it on appeal, I mean, you can't really do that with arbitration. You, you're stuck with it. The process that we have been that we've developed and we've used gives. In the end, I mean, it's it's sort of a combination, I suppose, of the the, the conflict avoidance panelist. And I mean, remember, in terms of our rules, it could be either a three-person panel or a one-person panel. But in fact, the parties have always elected for a one-person panel. And I mean, how many cases have we done now through Transport for London? It's what? Um, About 40 30, odd, I think. 30-odd, yeah. 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 And they've all worked. And in some of the cases, have been absolutely huge. Some have been, you know, measured in the tens of thousands of pounds. Some have been measured you know, up to millions, I think. But in all cases, what you've seen is that, A, you are dealing with the project delivery teams. So the the actual project managers, the engineers, the, the, the construction people, you've got this mindset, which is we really want to get the project done, which is, is the starting point, which is so different to the mindset that, that we as lawyers use. But your conflict avoidance panelist has gone in and sort of used a hybrid process, I suppose. So they've, they've met the parties using what I guess one could call a form of evaluative mediation. They've, they've worked through the matter. They've, they, they come in with years and years of experience and expertise. They've read the papers. They've immersed themselves. They understand the contract. They've visited site. They've seen the plans. They've, they, they know what the issues are. They know the context of those issues. And they get rid of as many of the peripheral issues as they can in the course of those conversations with the parties. And and I think the phrase you used earlier was that they knock heads together, and, and basically that's what they do. And then if that doesn't dispose of everything, and I think we had a couple of cases where that did actually dispose of everything, but the vast majority of them didn't. But what it did was that it, it clearly defined the the core issue that was really at the heart of it. And then what you had was a fully reasoned, expert, independent, neutral recommendation made as to what the proper resolution should look like, what they should do to, to sort out the problem. And it's not binding. It's a recommendation. It's not, it's not a judgment. It's not an award. But for goodness sake, if you're sitting there as the parties to a case, and what you land up with is this reasoned, carefully thought through solution to the issue, which has been produced by somebody that you have faith in because they actually do know what they're talking about and they've got the expertise and the experience to, to demonstrate that. And you've worked closely with them now anyway for a while. And you land up with this document and you look at it and you show it to your lawyers I mean, the, the, the calculation that the lawyer has to then make is, well, you know, am I likely to get anything different out of an arbitrator or a judge? Given that, you know, here this thoroughly reasoned solution is sitting in front of me. And it's, it's very difficult 
for lawyers at that point to say, all right, just ignore that completely. Let's go off and let's take this from scratch to a court. I mean, at worst, the other side could put in a uh, put in an offer, you know, based on that recommendation that's there. And if you're not going to follow it and the court doesn't then award anything more, you're going to be liable for costs at the end. So um, it's it's a very, very powerful mechanism because it, it, it gives everybody a reality check. And you'd have to be a very brave lawyer to say to your client, let's just ignore that completely and go off into the sunset and go and fight this out in court. I mean, I think I, I would <laughs> I'd find it very difficult to give my client that advice in the light of this, the, the quality of the recommendations that we've seen uh, delivered in the, in the CAP process. I think everything you've said there, John, is described that the, the process that we've introduced in, in the rail industry and, and Transport Fund in particular has, has proven to work. And, and what we've seen after years and years of helping people to resolve disputes, we've spent a lot of time in more recent years now helping to people to avoid and manage them, you know, so avoid disputes if possible, but to manage them much earlier so they don't go down that adversarial route. It's got to the point, hasn't it, now where we've seen that this is not just a one-off. This is actually something that is now taken off right across the industry. There's been a huge appetite for this whole attachment to conflict avoidance and early intervention. Yeah, well, I mean, if you go back to when was it, 20, God, 14, 15, 16, I'm losing track now, when the EU Directive on Collaborative Contracting came out. I mean, that sort of was the thing that kick-started this, wasn't it? Because that directive, which was then brought into into UK domestic law, said that if you were publicly funded, you had to enter into a process of collaborative contracting with your major project delivery partners. And if I remember correctly, that's sort of what kick-started this process, because Transport for London were looking for a mechanism which they could sign up to, which would actually comply with that, that legislative requirement. And so the whole idea of the conflict avoidance panel was to provide them with a mechanism that could give effect to that imperative to enter into collaborative contracting. And we've seen now, haven't we, that governments have picked this up, that it's uh, promoting this whole concept of conflict avoidance and early intervention in guidance in uh, for example, the Cabinet Office guidance published June 2020 on responsible behaviour for contracting parties in the Construction Playbook, which was published in the UK in December 2020. Yeah. Also, the uh, Scottish and devolved, the devolved yeah, government. I was going to say the devolved administrations have picked it up very yeah. strongly as well. But we've also seen, haven't we, support for the whole concept from other professional organisations. And as a result of that, we've developed this um, coalition and one of the things that's come out of the, the coalition that has proven to be uh, immensely powerful as, as, a, as a tool for promoting the whole concept of avoiding conflict and managing it better is the Conflict Avoidance Pledge, mm. which I confess I think was your idea. I remember you mentioning it at one of our earlier meetings. And uh, the pledge has, has taken off. Can you say a few words about it and where we are with it? Yeah, well, I mean, the idea was there was twofold. I mean, firstly, I thought that, look, it would be a really good idea if rather than RICS going into this alone, if we did start to work in collaboration with the other bodies in the country who are involved in the appointment of dispute resolve. And so we brought in International Chambers of Commerce, the Institute of Civil Engineers, REBA, Chartered Institute of Arbitrators, ICES, uh, Dispute Board Resolution Federation, and then uh, Network Rail and Transport for London joined as sort of representatives of the of the industry, and our view was that speaking collectively, we would get the ear of government more effectively than if we all spoke individually. And I think that's actually been borne out because you, you you've been talking about the level of support we have received both from central government and from the devolved administrations. And you know, I think the fact that all of these organisations are speaking with one voice on the subject has has really been an important factor of, of gaining that level of recognition. But the idea of the Conflict Avoidance Pledge is that what you need is a way for organizations to signal to the industry, but really importantly, to signal to other organizations as part of the tendering process even, that they are good organizations to work with in the sense that they are committed to trying to use conflict avoidance mechanisms to keep the cost of dispute resolution down and to avoid having to use dispute resolution 
you know, if they if they possibly can. And it's for that reason that we brought out the Conflict Avoidance Pledge, which is an online pledge that organizations can go and sign up to, organizations and individuals, anybody can sign up to it, by which they, they commit themselves to making sure that they and their staff and their management understand the whole concept of conflict avoidance and collaborative contracting and that they promote that within their their firms and that gives them you know what we've called sort of bronze membership <laughs> then silver membership is where they have actually written conflict avoidance procedures into their standard form contracts or their contracts and then gold memberships would actually use the process to try and avoid disputes growing to the point that they go to arbitration or litigation and along with the pledge we've we've created the the conflict avoidance directory which is a effectively a list of the organizations that have signed up and it's a mechanism from one for one organization if they are tendering to to say to another organization look we ascribe to this mindset we have signed the pledge we are in the directory if you deal with us you can rely on the fact that we are committed to sorting out differences between us which inevitably will arise in a way that is cost effective and quick and doesn't interfere with the delivery of the project any more than it needs to and i think that's that's the great advantage of of signing the pledge or becoming listed in the directory is that it is a communication by you to the people with whom you want to do business um, which places you at a competitive advantage over other organisations that haven't signed up. I mean, at its at its most blunt. And it's proven to be immensely successful this far, isn't yeah, it? it because we've seen nearly now three hundred businesses and organisations sign the pledge. And these are big businesses too. Some of them are very yeah. big businesses, yeah. aren't they? And uh, I, I think it'd be useful maybe to. Uh, let listeners know if they want to know more about the pledge, actually read the pledge, which is a very simple form of words. Uh, it goes to about eight lines. It, as John says, it commits organisations and businesses and individuals to avoiding conflict where possible, to managing conflict as best they can, and to put mechanisms in place that help parties to work more collaboratively, to reduce costs, help projects to be delivered on time and on budget. It's easy to get onto the RSS website, rss.org, and go forward slash CA pledge just to get more information and also to see the organisations that have signed up to it. And very recently as well, in fact, in the last few days, we've set up a LinkedIn group for the CAP pledge. And just to emphasise that the pledge itself is the a device which has been formulated and, and published by not just RSS, but industry organisations per se, and it's been supported, as I say, across governments in uh, in Westminster, Cardiff and Edinburgh, and in Belfast too. John, I, I, I just wanted to move on to kind of a, a different track just for a moment. Uh, and it's because, you know, we're now living, hopefully now, in uh, an increasingly post-pandemic world. Yeah. You know, that there's still going to be a legacy of that, I think, for a long time to come. We've seen, I think, a lot of changes that have happened in the world of conflict and dispute resolution and conflict avoidance as a result of the COVID situation. Mm -hmm. What do you think are going to be the main issues and challenges for construction bodies in the post-pandemic world when it comes to conflicts and disputes? Yeah, I mean, are you are you talking about the procedures that they're going to use, Martin? Are you talking about uh, circumstances on site? Are you going to talk about the availability of capital for development? Where, which way is your mind going on this? All, all good things there, John, because what, what I'm saying is the world has changed. Yeah. And everything you've mentioned there has changed. And it doesn't look like it's going to go back to where it was. What we're seeing, I think, uh, and this is something that we're getting more intelligence on as we talk to government departments, is indications that the number of disputes in the construction industry in the UK are, are increasing. And if it's happening in the UK, it's probably happening elsewhere. And that there is this drive, therefore, to try and find ways to manage that problem, particularly for the, the smaller businesses. You know, mm. those businesses that, if you mention adjudication, arbitration, litigation to them, their eyes glaze over because it's just not something they can use because... They're, they're too complex, too complicated. They're, they're, they cost too much. They take too long. And their cash flow requires kind of more immediacy in the way that conflicts and disputes are managed. Yeah. I mean, 
is this sort of there's so much to unpack in in what you've said there. So I mean, on the one hand, if you're looking at the SMEs, I mean, they were hit really badly by sites being shut down during lockdown during COVID, and suddenly, you know, the client's telephone's not working anymore when it came to phoning them up to get paid, and what we saw and we responded to was the the fact that adjudication construction you know adjudication under the housing grants act as we as we all understand it had become too expensive for smes to to enter into it had become too too legalistic too close to arbitration i suppose in a way and so you chaired a a working group at the construction industry council that whose whose task was to produce the low cost adjudication model which is a is a is a is a procedure which is uh, completely compliant with the act but which puts restrictions on the amount of evidence that come in the capped fees involved in it and it, it provides a streamlined very effective process for dealing with smaller disputes and that's measured in terms of i think it's under 50,000 pounds and it brought the cost of adjudication down from i don't know 20,000 pounds a pop to what 6,000 pounds a pop we then went even further and we brought out a even more streamlined process which brought the cost down to about 2000 pounds so that was a, as a as a direct response as the construction industry council and as RICS who's you know the the by you know the major pointer of adjudicators in the UK to provide for the smaller end of the construction market in terms of allowing them to launch adjudication proceedings to get paid basically the money that they claimed was owing to them so that's you know the one side of what you're talking about but moving forward the other side is to what extent are these smaller organizations desperate to get work to start building up their businesses again as as the market opens up i suppose the first question is are they going to be desperate for work or are they going to be in a seller's market in which they're clients are going to be really struggling to find contractors who can do the work for them because so many contractors have gone under during COVID that there aren't that many contractors now. So, I mean, we we need to wait and see what the reality of that market is. But in any event, I mean, there will be a reluctance on the part of people starting afresh, rebuilding their businesses to, to bite the hand that feeds them by taking their clients to adjudication. So, it brings us full circle back to where we started. You know, what can even those SME and smaller contractors write into their contracts to allow a more formal mechanism to take place to deal with with issues? And again, you sort of come around to, should they be talking about cap? Should they be talking about evaluative mediation? Should they be putting something into their contracts at the beginning, which allows them to avoid the need to actually take the client to adjudication, which, you know, inevitably damages the relationship between the parties. I think there's partly a, a short-term response, isn't there, and a, a much longer term. And I think the longer term is what you were referring to there towards the end of that piece, John, where it's about what parties put into their contracts going forward. And it's, it's again, borrowing from this culture change that we're seeing across the wider construction industry, which is this move towards more collaborative working, more cooperation in managing and resolving disputes much earlier by using procedures such as CAP and evaluative mediation, those kinds of things. More immediate, of course, is for those parties, particularly the smaller businesses, that don't already have the facility to you know, use a, a conflict avoidance process, so there's no agreement on it to make best use they can of what's already there. And what's already there, of course, is in the UK, the Construction Act, which provides for the adjudication of construction disputes. And as you rightly described, there is a now a procedure that the Construction Industry Council has published, which enables smaller disputes, those disputes where the value is £50,000 or less. And when I say smaller disputes, it's all relative, isn't it? Because for some contractors, you know, eight, nine, ten thousand pounds is an enormous or very important sum of money. But previously, they felt perhaps disenfranchised from adjudication under the Construction Act because over time it has evolved into something that is more complex and more legalistic than had originally intended to be. And what the CIC procedure does, it allows those smaller disputes to use and make use 
of Construction Act compliance adjudication without all that complexity to deal with it quickly, to deal with it cheaply and to get a decision within 28 days, mm. which is, you know, that's hugely important because, of course, we've also seen adjudication of bigger disputes drag on for weeks and months. Part of the challenge, I suppose, is to encourage adjudicators to use the powers they already have at law under the scheme for construction contracts to adopt procedures like the low-value process published by the CIC. Because at the end of the day, in every adjudication, not every adjudication, but many adjudications I've seen, you have a referring party who wants the matter resolved and a respondent who would do anything to get out of that adjudication and avoid it. And if in those situations you have a respondent saying, well, I'm not playing ball, I don't want to get involved in this low-value thing, first of all, why do that? They're going to adjudicate anyway, and if they don't use this, they're going to end up paying more money at the end of the day, whether they win or lose. Getting the adjudicator to adopt a robust position and use the power they have under the, uh, and obligation in fact, under the, the regulations, to adopt the procedure if it's viable to do so in that particular dispute. Yeah. Well, I think there's 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 a big change there, isn't there? Because the, the Construction Industry Council rules have just been changed or just about to be changed, where they made reference in their low-cost rules to the fact that it had to be consensual. The parties had to agree to go to low-cost adjudication. And you were instrumental in, in moving that uh, away from that because, in fact, that's not correct. The Construction Act, as you say, confers on the adjudicator a duty to ensure that the adjudication is carried out on a cost-effective basis. And the low-cost adjudication rules are entirely compliant with the Act. And therefore, you don't need the consent of both parties to, to use it. The adjudicator can direct that that's the approach that will be taken during the course of the adjudication. And so you're quite right. It's, it's a case of ensuring that adjudicators feel empowered to do that. And the fact that the CIC rules are changing to make that clear, I think, will serve to allay the doubts that some adjudicators have had as to whether they actually do have that power, because now manifestly they do. So I'm hoping that that will cause a, a, a significant uptick in the um, in people using this, this service. Um, we've seen, I mean, we've seen well over 200 cases coming through in the last six months anyway of people using it. So it's growing anyway, but I think this will this will bring about a sea change in it. Uh, I was about to say, I think you're, you're right. And you're also right to say that, in fact, it has proven popular thus far, that RSS has appointed somewhere in the region of about 240 adjudicators under this particular low-value process. And I believe other nominating bodies are also being relatively busy appointing adjudicators. With, with the clarification in the CIC rules that hopefully will come forth in the next couple of months, uh, or even sooner, it will be even more popular. John, we've talked about a, a couple of things. We've kind of gone in different directions and the, 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 the starting point of this was very much around this move in the industry to more uh, better ways of managing and resolving conflicts. And then we've just talked very briefly there about how changes are happening post-COVID perhaps, but also uh, in line with helping smaller businesses to engage in dispute resolution through adjudication. I kind of want to go back a little bit on to revisit the, the COVID situation and what it's meant in terms of how procedures like adjudication, arbitration, and indeed litigation have changed as a result of COVID, you know, and, and in particular, the use and reliance on technology. You know, you and I now, we, we've worked with each other for 10, 12 years. We were used to seeing each other in the office every day for the last two years we've talked to each other on screen. And I think yeah. that has to be the same for many of the people listening to this podcast. So it just makes me wonder what your views are on how perhaps this sudden surge in the use of technology will impact on the future for dispute resolution. I'm probably far less excited about it than people think. Because if you look at adjudication, it's much of it has always been done on paper. You know, having actual hearings and adjudications are few and far between. Sure, they're site visits occasionally when they need them. But, you know, whether those papers are sent in an envelope through the post or whether they are attached to an email or put into a Dropbox or whatever it might be, 
to my mind, I just it's it's not a big deal. Um, as far as as far as I can see, if an adjudicator needs to speak to people, instead of getting them to come into the office and sit there around a table, you set up a Zoom call and you talk to them. Inspections in loco, I mean, site inspections are still site inspections. You you can't really do that. I mean, everybody goes on about using drones and stuff, but I mean, in reality, you drive there, you walk around, you have a look at it, and you you drive back. And I mean, you can still do that, and we'll always do that. So. I know this is probably not the answer you're expecting out of me, but I'm not sure that I understand what all the fuss is about. Because it seems to me that we have all got used to doing stuff over Teams and Zoom. We're perfectly good at talking to each other online, as we're doing now, with the advantage or disadvantage, depending on how ugly you are, of, of having a camera on. And the rest of it, I mean, you know, whether documents come by email or whether documents come in an envelope you know if you one of these people like me who who finds scrolling backwards and forwards through stuff quite difficult will you print them out that's i mean that's it as far as i'm concerned martin i know it's probably not the answer you're expecting but i'm i'm not sure that it's it's i think the the both the arbitration and the adjudication process are eminently flexible they always have been historically and i think they've both taken the move online on their stride just as they took the move away from sending documents by post to sending them by email on their stride in their stride john it, it is the answer i expected of you uh, okay. i've known you long enough now to know that what to expect for, uh, in terms of an answer to that but what i also know from the relationship we you and i have had for, for many years now is that um, we often disagree and uh, I think in this particular <laughs> case but we, we don't disagree to the point where we fall out we just uh, um, have different views sometimes and um, I, I just got a sense that the pandemic has led to an increased reliance on technology to the extent that people may not have even realised just how the world of dispute resolution is changing as a result of that. Yeah, so what do you mean by that? I mean, Let me explain. First of all, I think there have been regular meetings, I think, between adjudicators and parties, notwithstanding that on the main there's been a, a a documents-only exercise. But I think there's actually increasing appetite now for face-to-face via Zoom, via Teams. I think technology uh, has become normal in terms of how the whole adjudication process, and indeed mediation as well, of course, and uh, indeed arbitration is happening. But there's certain things I think people haven't really thought through properly, and that is such as um, managing meetings properly. I heard of a, a a dreadful uh, situation where a hearing was conducted and the uh, the tribunal afterwards thought that the mic was off and carried on talking in disparaging terms about one of right, the parties. Okay. Yeah. I, I think there has to be some kind of uh, realisation that if you're using technology as it's going forward and there's going to be more and more use of technology, that parties become aware that there needs to be certain protocols and adjustments made, certain around confidentiality and and um, being very careful of what's been said. And if your your infant, if your toddler walks into the room, you can persuade your <laughs> wife that she doesn't have to crawl through the door to come and try and take it out again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that's that. Well, I mean, that's that's part of the fun of it sometimes, isn't it? Seeing that happening. Yeah. But I'm, I'm battling to see where we differ from each other on this, Martin. Because I mean, I think we're both working from the presumption that yeah, people have got used to it. But I mean, what you're talking about now are the, and I agree with you, of course, are the other practical things that people should be aware of in this new medium to make sure that they don't make idiots of themselves, really. Yeah, absolutely. And also, technology is a very good thing. And I was fascinated at a adjudication society conference I went to back in November. You were there also. Yeah, I was there too. Yeah. Hearing uh, about the incidences now where technology is taken over from site visits. So mm-hmm. drones are being used to examine sites rather than the adjudicator get on a train and turn up somewhere to another part of the country and uh, pay a visit in Wellington boots and that kind of thing. Uh, and I think that it's just the start of it. I think what what's happened as a result of COVID is a leap forward in the embrace of technology in this in this sector in, in conflict resolution. I mean, you know, come on, Martin. We we both of a generation that saw the first word processes. And I mean, we can both remember what telex machines were. We can both remember what it was to send a fax. I mean, we can both remember what carbon paper was. So, you know, we've we've come some way, but bizarrely enough, we've just adapted, haven't we? To the point Very that quickly too. we don't even really think it's strange that we're talking to each other 
I mean, this is a podcast, so we haven't got our cameras on, but I was sitting in a meeting yesterday and I had people in Canada, people in the Middle East, people in South Africa, people in in the UK, uh, one person in France. And we were all just sitting there online talking to each other and nobody turned a hair. And we could see each other and you could see when someone looked bored and you can see when somebody, you know, obviously the delivery came to the front door, so off they went to go and let somebody in. But no one turned a hair. I mean, it's just, the new normal and we've adapted to it and I, you know, I think I mean I remember going to Qatar oh goodness nearly 10 years ago now when their new arbitration suite had been set up and they had these these big screens on the wall of the of what was effectively looked like a courtroom and how excited everybody was at the fact that at some point you would be able to have different parties in different parts of the world talking to each other over this lot and we all oodenard over this I mean, goodness, now, I mean, you wouldn't even think twice about it. I mean, that's just the way we go about business every day. So, yeah, I mean, I, I go back to the point that, yes, I, the points that you are making about making sure that you do understand technology, that you know how to make it work for you, that you know how to get the meetings done, that you don't leave your microphone on, that you don't stand up if you're wearing a suit on the top and pajama bottoms underneath. <laughs> um, you know, all of those sort of things, hugely important. But that's that's the fine-tuning. I mean, the fundamentals we as a species have just got used to dealing with each other online. And I, I think adjudication and arbitration and dispute resolution in general are, are going along the same lines. I, th- I think, John, that's a, a great way to put an end to this podcast on a light note. The the image of you wearing a suit and tie on the top and standing up t- to uh, display your flowery pyjamas, I think that's a great way to, 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 to <laughs> a great image to put much. in people's minds. Look, John, thank you very much. I think uh, that's been a, a conversation that uh, I've enjoyed. I, I hope the people listening to this podcast also enjoy it and find it useful. And um, certainly if they want more information about the work that RSS has been doing and indeed other organisations on collaborative working, conflict avoidance and early intervention, then please do go onto the RSS website, uh, rss.org forward slash DRS. John, it's been a pleasure talking to you again. We could have talked, I think, for a, another hour or two or three, or perhaps even the rest of the day, because I know we've done it before when we've been stuck at airports. Well, guess what, Martin? We've got about two further meetings in our diary about DRS stuff, so I dare say we will talk to each other for another no, few hours yeah. today. But as always, it's been a great pleasure, and thank you. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for joining us today on this podcast. Absolutely. Bye. Bye, then. Bye.